My name's John, I'm one of the pastors here at this campus, and it's so good to be together today. There's lots of people traveling, but there's lots of people here, and there's just something so um, good that I think sometimes we can forget. The, the goodness of being together as the people of God in the presence of God. It's just it's good to be together. I'm going to start this morning with a trivia question. Mm, so if you, if you want credit, you might have to raise your hand. If you just shout it out, we'll get around to it. But what animal has been causing some mischief off the coast of Portugal and Spain lately? Killer whales, orcas, yes. What have they been doing? What have they been pulling off of boats? Not fish. Not fishermen. <laughs> Rudders. These orcas have been, there's a shipping lane kind of off of Spain and Portugal, and they've sunk three boats, but it doesn't seem like that's on purpose, but they'll come up and they'll just pull off the rudder, play with it, and swim away. And it's bizarre, and we can't ask them, why are you doing this? But the researchers, to the best that they can tell, it just seems to be a fad, that they think it's funny. And it's actually brought to light that there was a group of orcas just off the Puget Sound, is that how you say it, Puget Sound? In the 80s. Uh, and one orca started wearing a dead salmon as a hat on her head. That's not, and this, this is more recent, that's a mola, so that's not a salmon, this has happened more recently. So salmon are out, mola are in, apparently. <laughs> uh, but this one, this one orca in the 80s, she was wearing a dead salmon on her head as a hat, and then the whole pod started doing it. And then they interacted with a different pod, and they started doing it. And I think there was maybe a third, and for about five or six weeks, they're wearing dead salmon as hats. And then it stopped. And again, we can't ask them. So the best that anyone can tell, it was just a fad. They thought it was funny or interesting or looked really good. And it ties into the sermon this morning. <laughs> so we're going to hold on to that. We're going to come back to it. But we are continuing our series in the book of Luke. We're kind of going through chapter by chapter. If you want to open your Bibles, you can to Luke 16. If you want a pew Bible, it's page 493. Uh, but we've been going through Luke chapter by chapter, verse by verse for a little while now. And Jesus has been talking in this section to a group of people. We've got tax collectors. We've got a group of people the Bible just calls sinners. We've got Pharisees and we've got Jesus' disciples. So you've got the people that you would never expect to be in a church and the people that were born there and are super professional at it. We've got the whole range. And so Jesus is talking to everybody and he's explaining the kingdom of God with stories. The kingdom of God is like a tower. The kingdom of God is like a feast. The kingdom of God is like a son who asked his father for his inheritance. And all of this, Jesus is helping, helping those who are listening and us who are listening in to understand what the kingdom of God is like. What is it like to live in the place where God's character is the culture? And so that's where we're diving in today. Uh, a couple of cultural things that will just help us. Uh, back in the day, if someone was particularly rich uh, as an owner, they would have a manager. So the owner would own everything, but the manager would take care of the the day-to-day -day details. They would make the arrangements, do the contracts, meet with clients, and all of that jazz. It'd be kind of like if you started a business, 
It got really successful, and then you put a CEO and a board in charge, and you still owned it, but you weren't at the board meetings. So that's kind of the, the owner-manager relationship. Secondly, if you wanted to borrow something, you would kind of go to someone, and they would give you a piece of paper or parchment or whatever, and you would write the contract, and they would keep it. So because it was in your handwriting, but they kept it, it kind of prevented fraud. So you both had to be there if you wanted to make any changes. So just a little bit of cultural background. Let's take a look. Jesus said to his disciples, there was a rich man whose manager was accused of wasting his possessions. So he called him in and asked him, what is this I hear about you? Give an account of your management because you cannot be manager any longer. The manager said to himself, oh, what shall I do now? My master's taking away my job. I'm not strong enough to dig and I'm ashamed to beg. Ah, I know what I'll do. So that when I lose my job here, people will welcome me into their houses. So he called in each one of his master's debtors. He asked the first, how much do you owe my master? 900 gallons of olive oil, he replied. The manager told him, take your bill, sit down quickly and make it 450. Then he asked the second, and how much do you owe? A thousand bushels of wheat, that's like 30 tons. He replied. He told him, take your bill and make it 800 or 24 tons. The master commended the dishonest manager because he had acted shrewdly. For the people of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own kind than are the people of the light. So this is the word of the Lord. But what is going on? Like this is one of the stories where it's like, I'm pretty sure this guy is the bad guy. I think he's the bad guy. Wait, he's the good guy. And well, this is weird. The bad guy's the good guy. This doesn't seem to be what Jesus normally says. So what we're going to do is, I've always thought this is a weird story. I really enjoy digging into it. So we're going to take a little bit of a closer look. So the manager, he's accused of being wasteful. And that's the same word, wasteful, is the same word we also translate as prodigal. So the prodigal son wasted his father's inheritance. This manager wasted the owner's possessions. It's the same word. So if you want to have a picture of what the prodigal son was doing, it might have looked a little bit like this. And so he's accused, and the owner says, you're fired, but because the manager's in charge of everything, it takes time to go from firing to last day. So there's a period of time in between which he's fired and which he's done. And so he sits down with his time, and basically what he does is, because he has the full authority of the master still, of the owner, he sits down with each of the clients. And here, we only have two examples, but it says that he sits down with every one of them, with each one. And he forgives roughly $150,000 worth for each person. So in these two examples alone, it was about $300,000 worth of debt that he forgave. And the master, he comes back, and when he hears about this, the manager's kind of painted him into a corner. Because all of the people that had their debt forgiven would have said, wow, what a generous master. This owner is the best guy. So if the owner goes back and says, actually, it was a clerical error, you do owe us that $150,000, every single one of his clients would have been, man, you are petty. You're awful. This was forgiven. And so the manager here, he paints the owner into a corner because there's not really anything else he can do. He's already fired the manager. He can't undo all this forgiveness. And so here he is, he's stuck. And so he comes to the manager and he's like, listen, I can't fire you any more than you're fired. 
I can't undo what you did. I don't like it, but nice move. Like, game recognize game. Like, I see what you did there, and I don't like it, but I, I can appreciate it. Does anyone here watch Survivor? Any Survivor fans? Okay, I've watched just a couple seasons, so I know it's different every year, but in Survivor, if you don't know, uh, there's a group of people, they're sent to an island, and every day or every couple of days, the people on the island vote someone off, last person there gets a million dollars. But the people who are still in the game don't vote for the person who wins a million. Instead, what they do is they take people who have already been eliminated, and those people vote on the remaining three or four or whatever as to who gets it. And they don't vote for the nicest person. Oftentimes, they will vote for the people that played the game the best. You maneuvered most masterfully. You did the best betrayal. You understood the rules, and you played it, and even if you got me eliminated, I respect that, because you understood this crooked game, and you played it well. Game recognized game, and they vote for the person who played the game the best. And I think that's a little bit about what this manager and this owner have going on. It's game recognized game. I understand what you did, and I don't like it, but you played this crooked game well. So what does this mean for us? Are we encouraged to live crooked lives? To be as self-serving as we can? To burn every bridge because it doesn't matter in eternity? I don't think so. Don't write that down. So with Jesus, he actually unpacks it. So we're going to keep reading. In verse 9, Jesus says, I tell you, use worldly wealth to gain friends for yourselves so that when it is gone, you will be welcomed into eternal dwellings. Whoever can be trusted with very little can also be trusted with much, and whoever is dishonest with very little will also be dishonest with much. So if you've not been trustworthy in handling worldly wealth, who will trust you with true riches? And if you've not been trustworthy with someone else's property, who will give you property of your own? No one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. And the Pharisees, who loved money, they heard all this and they were sneering at Jesus. He said to them, you are the ones who justify yourselves in the eyes of others, but God knows what's in your hearts. And what people value highly is detestable in God's sight. So Jesus is not saying we need to be like the crooked manager. He's saying we need to learn from the crooked manager. He says, this this crooked crook understood something that you need to grasp. It's kind of like learning from the Grinch about Christmas. That even the Grinch, terrible, grumpy, awful person though he is, even the Grinch figured out that Christmas isn't about the presents. And Jesus here, he's telling a bit of a Grinch story. He's not a good guy, but he figured something out. And if we want to understand the truth about money in the kingdom, we have to figure it out too. That there's a truth about money that it's not ours. I think that's why Jesus uses the picture of a manager or a steward, which means all the money in your wallet, in your pocket, in your investments, in your account, it's not ours. It's not for us, not all of it at least. And it doesn't last forever. And Jesus says this manager, his heart may not have grown three sizes that day, but he understood. Money's not ours. It doesn't last forever. 
and it's not just for us. Jesus says if he can figure it out, it's really important that we can too. So he's not giving the managers a good example, but a good lesson from a bad example. So don't do what he did. Historically, some people have. Our money isn't ours. And so I feel, I would suspect, I'd be confident that there are people here for whom this comes naturally. That money is not for you, and it barely hits your account before you just want to give it away. You're quick to respond, you're quick to give, you want to bless and help and fix, and, and your money just, it just flows from you. And I would suspect that there's others for whom this is a challenge. It says the Pharisees scoffed when they heard this. So Jesus gives them some scoff medicine. And for me, this has been a journey. Because money, for me, isn't just money. Like, numbers are numbers. But cash or digital money isn't just money. Money, for me, it's provision. It's the ability to pay the rent. It's the ability to fill the car. It's the ability to eat food. It's security, knowing that even though I'm going to eat today, I have enough to, that I know I'm going to eat tomorrow. It's safety. It's a measure of success. Low number, low success, high number, high success. Money can make you a good person. Because if I'm stressed about money, you know, that's why I'm a little grumpy. If that's why I'm not super generous, it's because I don't have enough. But if I had more, then I would be relaxed. I'd be easygoing. If I had a million dollars, boy, would the money flow. Money brings me worth and acceptance. If I have more money, I'll have better clothes, better toys, and people will like me more. Money brings freedom and time. Money brings leisure and pleasure. Money brings power, influence, legacy, and reputation. And part of me wants to keep my money because I want my money to bring me these things. Maybe you're like that too. So if I give my money away, I'm not giving numbers away. I'm giving security and wealth and prestige. I'm giving success and acceptance away. So why would I give that to someone else when that's what I want for myself? I just want to take a moment and, and recognize that there are money struggles, that sometimes we don't know how we're going to pay our rent next, that sometimes three meals a day is a luxury and not something to be taken for granted that there are people who will decide whether they can drive to the doctor because they can't afford the gas. And we're not talking about wanting to meet needs. We're not talking about using money as a tool for the basic necessity of life. But whether you have a little or a lot, we're talking about trusting money to take care of us. And there's a difference. See, money, in order to, for money to take care of me, in order for it to take care of us, it has to be powerful, it has to be lasting, and it has to be good. But Jesus says none of those things about money. What does he say? He says that being trusted with money is the same as being trusted with very little, and who you are with very little is who you will be with very much. And so he says, actually, money doesn't make you a better person. 
that if you've got $100 and you're a terrible, grumpy, selfish person, well, if you had a billion, you'd be a terrible, selfish, grumpy billionaire. That money doesn't change you. You are the exact same person regardless of the number in your pocket. So it doesn't change you. It doesn't last. Jesus contrasts worldly riches. He says, if, if you can't handle the things that are of this world, who's going to give you something that lasts forever? Did you ever have in health class where, in order to kind of teach you the responsibilities of child rearing, that you're given a dozen eggs or a sack of flour? And they're like, this is a baby, take care of it. Did anyone ever have that? No? Okay. So in health class, <laughs> maybe this is an Alberta thing, but I don't know. Um, that in health class, that they would give you a dozen eggs or an egg or a sack of flour, and you had to take that with you everywhere for like a week or two weeks. And by bringing it back at the end, it kind of demonstrated that you understood how to take care of a child. I mixed up the analogy, and when we had Ezra, I kept trying to make a cake with him. <laughs> but it's the similar idea, that if you can't handle a dozen eggs, what makes you think you can handle a kid? Now, the analogy is not watertight, but... There's something about being trusted with the temporary that demonstrates character for the eternal. And Jesus says money, it's maybe not a test, but it's a proving ground. And if you can't handle this, why are you going to get something that lasts forever? See, Jesus talks in the Sermon on the Mount. He says, don't seek treasure that is just in this world, because that can get stolen, and that can, it can rot, and it can just disappear, but... Do seek treasure that goes in heaven because that is truly valuable and it lasts forever and it's going to be yours. And I don't understand what that looks like. But Jesus seems to indicate that treasure in heaven, it doesn't seem to be currency. It does seem to last forever. It is worth seeking and it does seem to be ours. But Jesus says, if you can't handle money in this life, who's going to trust you with that in the next? So money doesn't make you a better person. It doesn't last, and it's not ours. Do we really agree with Jesus on this? He says, if we can't trust you with somebody else's property, who's going to give you property of your own? I don't have my wallet on me. Or my, Emily has a purse, I don't have a purse. Um, but if you have a wallet, or if you use banking on your phone, just touch it for a second. And now ask yourself, if somebody stole that, whose are they stealing? Are they stealing your money, or are they stealing God's money? And on, I think we could all get the written exam right. God's money. But the practical exam, that's mine. And see, I wrestle with that, that my money is my money because it's my money. But Jesus says, actually, like everything else in life, it's not that money doesn't make you better. It doesn't last. It's not yours. And it's not for you. See, even this crooked manager understood that something outlasts money. That money has a greater and eternal purpose, but it's kind of short in itself. And actually, Jesus goes a little bit further. He says that we can actually serve money as a master. Like the almighty dollar, almost. 
So we have the almighty God, and we have the almighty dollar. And you know, tongue-in-cheek, people talk about the almighty dollar. But Jesus says you actually can treat money in such a way that it stops being a tool and it starts to become your master. That it starts to influence your values, that it influences your priorities, your decisions, your character. That money, it can become your God. And I think it's really, really, really important we understand right now that Jesus isn't talking budgeting. He's not saying you've got to shift the numbers around, folks. You've got to balance your perspective. You've got to have, make sure you diversify your spiritual portfolio. He is saying there is a spiritual reality here. That money can take the place of God, which makes it a darkly spiritual force. See, we're not talking numbers here. We're talking very powerful spiritual realities. That if money becomes your God, your life changes. And so what does this look like? Well, for me, when I start to notice that money shifts and takes an unhealthy point or place in my life, I start to see everything through the lens of what it costs. I start to feel every kilometer I drive. I talk a lot more about money, about how much something costs, whether it should be more or less whether things are expensive, whether I have all I want. And the more I talk about money, the more I realize it has a hold on my heart. So that's one way that I can tell that, that money is, is shifting. But I think that even more strongly is there's the temptation to pursue money, trusting that the problems caused by pursuing money will be solved by money. That we pursue money Believing that the problems caused by pursuing money will be solved by money. And I think that's one of the more significant shifts that we're trusting money with our good. See, this might be, for example, working unnecessarily long hours in order to get enough to get a vacation, and we believe that a better vacation is going to smooth over the fact that we were working unnecessarily long. It might be harsh and unnecessary frugality, believing that the money we save will one day provide joy and freedom and we never get around to spending it. It might be pursuing that little bit extra, whether through credit or gambling or compromises, believing that whatever money comes out of it will make it okay in the end. See, when we start trusting money, when we start pursuing money and believing that the problems caused by pursuing money will be solved by money, I think that that's, I think that's a sign that it's become a little bit more than it should. I talked earlier about the orca. I think it's hilarious. And I think it'd be great if it came back in fashion. Like if these orcas just start popping up and there's salmon on their heads, I think it'd be really funny if it caught on with people. <laughs> like, Pastor Kevin's on vacation right now, but he comes back, <laughs> and he's got a salmon hat. <laughs> and we're like, actually, that looks really good. <laughs> and so all of us start wearing salmon hats. And that would be really fun for, like, the first hour. But let's say we stuck with it. And now all of a sudden that salmon is warm now. 
And then we head to the picnic in the park, and that salmon is hot. But we're like, these are worth it. And we don't give up. And tomorrow, there's a few flies buzzing around it. And there's maggots dropping on our shoulders. And we're like, nope, we're going to keep going. And pretty soon it starts to decompose, and you get the salmon sweats. <laughs> Bear with me. And it starts to stain your shirts. And we're like, we're going we're to do this. And it starts to reek. And it smells. And anyone who steps in the same room with you starts to gag. Stay with me. And they're like, this is disgusting. And you're like, I am not giving up this salmon hat. And see, Jesus says, when it comes to money, it's not a matter of us convincing each other that it's good. He says, whatever we value, we can justify ourselves in front of each other, absolutely. But he says that when we value money like that, it is detestable in God's sight. It is repulsive. It is revolting. It's like when we step into the room and money has got that kind of hold on our hearts, we've got the salmon sweats and there's maggots on our shoulders and we're like, I'm sticking with this and God is like, oh, this is disgusting. It's revolting. It is, it is life-changingly, life-destroyingly wretched. And yet we think it's cute. To value money like this, God says it makes me gag. It breaks relationships. It destroys your life, and yet you stick with it. It's disgusting. See, we're not talking budgeting. We're talking hearts. We're talking spiritual realities. And so we want to take a moment and we want to ask the Holy Spirit and, and see actually if there are a few money-based maggots hanging out. If we've pushed this money salmon hat thing just a little too far in our lives. Has money become our God? So if you're comfortable, we're just going to take a moment. If you're not uncomfortable, we're taking a moment And it's not a matter of justifying ourselves. See, we can so easily put a really good picture up in front of everybody else, and we can convince ourselves. And Jesus says it doesn't matter if you can convince each other. Because God sees the heart. So if you would, if you would join me, just close your eyes. And just open your hands, if you would like, as a, as a picture of holding everything in our lives open to God. Kind of like we're unpacking a backpack and allowing him to, to go through everything that's in it. And we say, Holy Spirit, does money have a grip? Holy Spirit, where does money have a grip? Where do we trust it to make us better? Where do we lean on it to take care of us forever? Where are we investing our lives in it? Where even are we serving it? 
So God, you search the hearts and minds, and I pray that you would soften our hearts, that we would not put up pretense or put on masks, but we would hold our lives out to you and say, where and do we trust money more than you? God, we ask you would search us, that you would know us, that you would see if there's any wicked way in us. And if there is, we, I pray you would give us the softness of heart to just confess and ask for your grace for us to steer the ship in a different direction. Amen. Just three more verses. Now, an advantage to preaching through the Bible like this, verse by verse, chapter by chapter, is that you hit everything. The downside is that sometimes we come to the parts that are challenging that we'd rather avoid, which is also sometimes the upside. But if we want to be apprentices of Jesus, if we want to learn from Jesus how to be like Jesus, it means we need to listen when he speaks. So I did a lot of reading, a lot of reading. And what I realized is that I own a lot of books by a lot of people who really don't know what these verses are about. And so what we're going to do is we're going to keep it simple. We're going to keep it short. And what I'm going to do is I'm just going to give you that when, when I go home, when I, John, go home, this is how I read these verses. And maybe there's more to it, and maybe I need to grow in my understanding, but we're going to keep it simple. So verse 16, the law and the prophets were proclaimed until John. Since that time, the good news of the kingdom of God is being preached and everyone is forcing their way into it. It's easier for heaven and earth to disappear than for the least stroke of a pen to drop out of the law. Anyone who divorces his wife and marries another woman commits adultery, and the man who marries a divorced woman commits adultery. So we're just going to cover divorce in the Old Testament law in the last, like, three minutes here. But in an effort to stay within my depth and be faithful to Jesus, we're going to keep it simple. I only want to say, oh sorry, here's my takeaway for verse 16 and 17. That the first part of the Bible here, what we call the Old Testament, that was the same Bible Jesus used. And number one, I think that that's kind of unbelievable that this is what Jesus read. It wasn't in English, but it's the same Bible. And I think what Jesus is saying here is that start to finish, this book is good news. That the law and the prophets, John the Baptist, and the gospel, this is good news. And the Old Testament is tough, and, and we can tend to avoid it, and we feel like the new is a little bit easier, but I think Jesus is saying, this is good news. And it's such good news that people are, are doing anything they can to get into it. It's kind of like a Black Friday sale, spiritually speaking. The people are like, we got to get in. There's a, there's a kingdom, and there's good news, and, and we want into this. And so I, and that's how I read this verse. Is Jesus is saying that Old and New Testament is good news, and people really want in. And secondly, I would imagine that everyone in this room has been impacted by divorce. Whether it's parents, siblings, family members, friends, or yourself, 
We've all been impacted by it. And I only want to say two things about divorce. Number one, I want to say that if divorce has touched your life, that you are welcome here. That all of us come to the cross in need of grace. And that grace is extended to you as well. Number two, I think that what Jesus is saying here, in a large part, was in an effort to help protect women. In Jesus' day, women had no access to divorce. A woman could not initiate a divorce, kind of depending on the local culture. Uh, but a man could divorce his wife for any and every reason. And that was kind of the phrase, any and every reason. So fur, burned supper, divorced. Gray hairs, divorced. Sassy comment, divorced. And those were all legitimate because they were all legal because any and every reason. Now, what, does, what kind of position does that put women in when you can be divorced like that, but you can't initiate the same? And so Jesus is saying, hey, men, you, you like to divorce at any and every reason where we're going to pull it back. Now you're committed to this thing too. And so I think a big part of what Jesus is saying here was that marriage should be between equals, that it lasts, and that it's important. And now I know that this brings up a thousand questions about a thousand situations, and there's a story for each of us in this room, and so I would encourage you. Um, Matthew Price preached a sermon on March 15th, 2015, and it's available on the website. That's the link. That's the QR code. It is a much better and fuller unpacking of divorce and remarriage than I can do right now. So if this has triggered or brought up, or, or if you have something in your mind and you say, what about, I would encourage you to check this out. It's a better and fuller way than I can do right now. So March 15, 2015, it's on the website. Secondly, if you're in considering divorce, or if you know someone who is, I would encourage you to take a look at the Hope Restored program through Focus on the Family. It's a week-long intensive retreat with counseling and I believe they have a roughly 80% success rate that two years later, couples who go through this are still happily married. So if you are considering divorce, I would suggest you to take a look. It's not on the screen, but it's hope restored through Focus on the Family. And so what does all of this mean for us this week? What are we putting in our pockets to take to the picnic? Well, a few things. Number one, marriage is important. We treasure it. We protect it, we invest in it, we fight for it, and we mourn when it breaks down. Secondly, don't be afraid of the Old Testament. It's good news too. It's tough and it feels foreign, but it makes for good discussion questions, and Jesus saw it as good news. And thirdly, remember that money doesn't last forever. Not all for us. It doesn't make you a better person. But there's a way that we can use it to slingshot something into eternity that does matter forever. And so I'm going to invite the band up. And two things, just two things I want to encourage us with towards with money. Number one is contentment. First Timothy, First Timothy 6, 6 to 10 says, godliness with contentment is great gain. That word there kind of means wealth. So it's like if you want to be rich, super rich, combine godliness with contentment. And that is great wealth. For we brought nothing into the world and we can take nothing out of it. But if we have food and clothing, we will be content with that. Those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a trap and into many foolish and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. 
Some people eager for money have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. So if you want to get really rich this morning, combine godliness with contentment. And what does this look like for me? Contentment looks like gratitude. What am I thankful for? Contentment looks like enjoying the things I already have or things that are free. Board games, time with friends, going for walks, libraries, festivals, bikes. Sometimes bike rides inspire envy, but that's another part of the same story. For me, learning contentment. Uh, donating or giving away things that I'm not using or delaying purchases of non-essential things. All those things for me have helped me grow in contentment. And secondly, generosity. Jesus said simply, it's more blessed to give than to receive. What that means is that there is a blessing in generosity. I'm not saying if you give him $10 today, God's going to bring you back $1,000. I'm not saying that that kind of prosperity gospel. What, what I am saying is I can say in my life that when Emily and I have been generous, God has blessed us. And I would invite you into the same. It's one of the best ways to combat the foothold of money. If you're worried that money has a hold in your heart, give it away. Then bother someone else. See, Jesus uses a weird phrase. He says to use money to gain friends for yourselves. This doesn't mean to have an entourage, that you're just making it rain nonstop. It's not hiring or buying a friend. He says, make friends. Spend your money in such a way that you make friends. Like the Good Samaritan. Guy's robbed on the side of the road. Good Samaritan picks him up, takes him to an inn. Says, listen, I'll take care of his bill. And I bet you when that guy woke up, the Good Samaritan was a friend. Use money in such a way that you make friends. So what would generosity look like for you? It could be as simple as a coffee or a meal dropping off food or gift cards at the food bank, helping someone with a repair, donating, donating money to the church or a charity. We meet practical needs within our community as do a number of other organizations. But find something and give. That's what money is for. And Jesus says when we do this, we will have treasure that lasts forever.